what happens when a prominent journalist like Jan Kuciak or Daphne Caruana Galicia is murdered and it is known that the perpetrators are those in power. How do law enforcement authorities go about investigating such high-profile murder cases? How do investigators look beyond the crime scene itself and track down the mastermind behind the shooter holding the gun? How do you go about convicting a person who ordered a hit who may be once, twice, or even more removed from the actual murder? Global initiative research into paid for assassinations has demonstrated that this is one of the biggest challenges behind solving organized crime-related murders. Even when much of the evidence gathered by law enforcement points towards a suspected mastermind, it remains incredibly challenging to obtain a conviction when corruption and the impunity that runs parallel to it endures within society. But convictions can and have been realized, and today we have a selection of speakers who have managed just that through their own investigations. This is the Faces of Assassination from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I am Siria Gastelum Felix, the Resilience Director at the GR. Throughout this series of podcasts, we'll be hearing stories of those who fought back against organized crime and speaking to those who are organizing the fight back today. And crucially, we will discuss how you can play a part in tackling this important issue by joining the Global Initiative's Assassination Witness Campaign. In the podcast today, we're discussing the role of investigations into high-profile targeted assassination cases what the challenges are in prosecuting the intellectual authors of the murders. And finally, I'll ask my guests for their recommendations on how we could improve investigations of this nature around the world. I'm delighted to say that joining me for the discussion today is Annie Scalamar, UN Special Rapporteur in Extrajudicial Killings, Steve Carmody, the Head of Investigation of Wildlife Justice Commission, Judge Antonio Balsamo, Prosecutor General of the Italian Supreme Court and Professor of Criminal Law at the Faculty of Law of the LUSA in Palermo, Italy. And Juan Francisco Sandoval, Head of the Anti-Impunity Unit, Fiscalia Especializada contra la Impunidad FESI, within Guatemala's Attorney General's Office. Welcome all to the podcast. It's a real honor to have you all here. Let's jump straight in. Anies Calamar, you've been involved in some high-profile cases, including the recent case of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who was lured into the Saudi embassy in Istanbul and murdered in 2018. Anies, why do you think assassinations have such a high impunity rate? Thank you very much for inviting me to the podcast. The main difficulty with the investigation of assassination hits, organized crime assassination, is the fact that it is extraordinarily difficult to investigate the chain of command. So the hitman may be investigated and indeed may be identified, but for the investigators, the police, to be able to then walk up the chain of command in order to reach those people at the top who ordered the killing, that is far more difficult And this is particularly so when those at the top of the chain of command 
are politicians, are members of the governments with some connection in the organized crime community. I should, however, add that there are also systemic problems that one may confront when investigating the assassination of individuals who are targeted because of their public position or because they've denounced organized crimes or they denounced corruption. There will be systemic problems whether or not they have been the object of a hit assassination. So some of the problems that I have most often encountered in investigating investigations is, for instance, the fact that the families of the victims are unable to register the attack because the police is unwilling to let them do so, maybe out of fear, maybe because they are corrupt. We also see systemic failures in the absence of scientific investigation, in the lack of forensic skills, or indeed in eyewitnesses not being interviewed. I personally have seen, I've looked at investigation of journalists, for instance, who were reporting on corruption and who had been killed for that purpose. And five years after their killings, the eyewitnesses still had not been interviewed by the police. And another problem that one confronts very often in this kind of situation is the unwillingness of the police to consider the identity or the work of the victim as motivations for their targeting. Thank you, Agnes. And Steve, you have wide experience as an investigator in law enforcement, including many murder cases. Can you please tell us what is needed to set up a murder-for-hire investigation? Hi, and thanks for uh, the invite to the podcast. Just touching on what Agnes mentioned during her question, uh, one of the biggest challenges is initially identifying that you are investigating a murder for hire or an organized crime hit. Now, often they are quite obvious. You know, you have a body you have murdered in, in a very public place or a very violent manner, but often you don't have a body. There may be a person that's been kidnapped or someone that just disappears. So from a law enforcement perspective, from an investigative perspective, you need to identify very quickly what you're dealing with so that you can bring together the right resources, the right units to start investigating as quickly as you can. The more time between identifying that there has been a crime and identifying the location of crime scenes, the greater chance you have of, of losing evidence. So moving very quickly is very important. Bringing together the right people and the right units is also crucial. So setting up a task force that looks at the murder or the, or the organised crime hit, bringing different agencies together with different powers and access to different systems so you have a full range of law enforcement agencies or, or units working together to solve this crime. And Steve, what are the biggest challenges when investigating these cases? Often you have a, a hitman and you can find these people. There's, there's physical evidence, there's CCTV footage, but it's very difficult to link it to the person who's actually ordered the hit. So identifying your suspects early on is also really important. Who profits from the death? You know, What's the motive behind this and who has the means? Now, as Agnes pointed out, often police won't accept that a person's occupation is the reason behind their death. You know, obviously they look at relatives or partners to see if they're involved or, uh, you know, the crimes are staged to make it look like a robbery gone wrong. And, and often these investigations can last for many, many years and you do sort the wheat from the chaff and getting to the, to the crux of it, identifying what caused this murder can often then point you in the right direction to implement your investigative strategies. Another really important thing to do with, with these types of crimes is to ensure that you have sufficient funding available 
to conduct them because they are expensive. You know, we're not just talking about crime scene costs or the cost for expert witnesses. We're talking about surveillance. We're talking undercover. We're talking telephone interception and listening devices. You know, these things are very costly investigations, time-intensive and labour-intensive. It's also really important to control the flow of information to the media. You know, the media can be a great investigative tool when, when used correctly, but can also cause you major issues if you don't get control of them early. And also to develop your investigative strategies. You know, are you going to attack the network? Have you identified the network? Are you going to look for a cooperator? Is there someone sitting in prison that's prepared to talk to you? With organised crime hits, people talk. People know. You know, people know why this person was murdered. It's just a matter of getting them to talk to law enforcement and to go to paper and go to court. You know, obviously, you know, you might need witness protection. You might need to look after these people. They may want a letter from the prosecutor to reduce their own sentencing on a crime that they've been convicted for. You know, also look at look at other crimes, not just the murder. Look at attacking the network. You know, if you have a person sitting at the top of a pyramid and he's in charge of a, a network, you start working on the network, looking at people within the network that you can turn against the person that ordered the murder. In some agencies, in, you know, in a country I work, we had agencies that had coercive powers, call people before then, get them to interview these guys or girls about, you know, motive, about where they were, the money, all that sort of stuff. You know, really powerful tools. Obviously, that's not available everywhere, but you've got to use what's available to you. Another thing is to follow the money. See who are the corrupt politicians or lawyers or judges or police that are looking after these guys and start working them. And Steve, what's the difference in prosecuting a mastermind and a perpetrator and why is it so difficult to charge and convict a mastermind? So when you're trying to convict a person for an organized crime hit or an assassination, you have the person who's ordered it, you have the mastermind, and then you have the person who's carried out the perpetrator. And it's a lot harder to convict the mastermind than it is to convict the perpetrator. Now, to give you an example, with the perpetrator, there's usually physical evidence of some sort, whether it's DNA, ballistics, fibers, fingerprints, that link them to the crime scene, that link them to the act that's resulted in the murder. You know, there's witnesses who've seen the murder. There's CCTV. You know, you have things that are tangible that, that a jury can understand and you can show them. With the mastermind, it's a lot harder. One, the perpetrator may not even know who the person was that ordered the crime. So it's very difficult for them to give testimony against the person that's, that's paid them, basically. The mastermind is at least one, but generally multiple steps away from the, from the contract killer. There's a lack of physical evidence linking them to the crime scene. Okay, so with that being said, how do you lead the mastermind to the murder? Basically, what it comes down to is motive. Why would this person benefit from the murder of the victim? And you've got to be able to prove that and prove that in a court of law beyond a reasonable doubt. You know, and unless you have conversations, unless you have cooperating witnesses, that's going to be very difficult to do. In the modern era, we also have much stronger and secure communications. So criminals are communicating and law enforcement is not in a position to intercept those messages. Sometimes those messages are not accessed for years later. But at the time, it's very difficult to get into these systems that are used by these criminal networks. And your mastermind has access to resources. He has money, he has access to lawyers, accountants, and access to powerful people, people that the perpetrator may not have access to. You know, it's in the interest of the mastermind that the perpetrator is the only person that's convicted for this crime. So often it's very hard for law enforcement to make that connection between the ordering of the killing and being responsible for it. Thanks a lot, Steve. Now, Judge Antonio Balsamo, during your career, you have been involved in trials of high-ranking civil servants and public officials that turned out to be 
in collusion with organized crime groups. From a criminal procedure perspective, what were and what still are the challenges to get these subjects on trial, prosecuted? I believe that the first challenge to be faced when conducting this type of trials is to build a judicial system that is truly independent from politics and not only from the other powers of the state, to remember Montesquieu's lesson, but also from those hidden powers that are capable of carrying out a very effective influence under the surface of what can seem an efficient judiciary. Also, this is an independence that shall derive not only from the legal framework, but also and above all from a set of moral values and ethical principles that inspire the conduct of judges and prosecutors. In this regard, recent investigations on the conduct of judges of the Italian High Council of the Judiciary have exposed behaviors characterized by a lack of ethics. As a consequence, the head of state, Sergio Mattarella, also member of a family that has made history in the fight against mafia after the assassination of his brother, Pier Santi, has launched a strong message asking for more commitment to and respect of ethical principles to gain citizens' trust back. My experience as a Sicilian is that the people of my island have begun to recover their pet injustice. When I see people, or I remember people, like Rocco Chinnici, judge that I had the honor to meet, or like Giovanni Falcone and Paolo Borsellino, who did their job and, and their role seriously in rejecting any influencing attempt by, by Cosa Nostra, I believe that this fate was at, at the basis of the development of the phenomenon of collaboration in general with the justice system, which meant the overcoming of the omerta, uh, the Italian term of describing the code of silence that had ruled and reigned for centuries in a city like Palermo, where the state was pretty much absent uh, for decades. And I believe that this is precisely uh, the second challenge. Uh, the cultural change uh, to be promoted in the conscience of citizens is as important as the independence of the judiciary. To me, they look like two sides of the same coins, as the history of the fight against mafia teaches us. Here, I would like to make a personal reference. I became a judge on May 24, 1992, in a night where all the young judges like me were saluting in front of the coffins of Francesca Morvillo, Giovanni Falcone, and the men and women of the security detail killed the day before in the Capaci massacre. A fact that was then later considered in the latest sentences as a mafia terrorist attack born from the convergence of between Cosa Nostra's will and, so to say, external interests. Here I believe that precisely in that moment the seed of a new alliance between the justice system and its members and the civil society was planted in the conscience of many people both in Palermo and then later in Italy in general. Indeed, we have seen in fact that when the justice system and civil society come together demanding change, it can make a real difference. Thank you for that, Judge. Of course, one of the biggest challenges is corruption, and we see in many cases the powerful influence of the suspected masterminds in these institutions that are already weak. What is the role played by the international independent investigations and how do they navigate this big challenge of corruption? Anis, I'll go first to you. Thank you very much. I, I think the best way to answer your question is the investigation into the execution of the journalist from Malta, Daphne Caruana Galicia, who was murdered on the 16th of October 2017 and her execution was uh, hit 
by people who had been hired by individuals that were both part of organized crimes of some kind, but also members of the Maltese government. That's a typical example, I think, of how criminal activities and political activities get mixed up and can lead in the worst case scenario to the killing of those who are reporting on their corruption. In the case of that particular killing, four regional international organizations took up the challenge. It included the the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, who appointed a Council of Europe special rapporteur to assess uh, the rule of law and how it impacted on the investigation into the killing. A third intergovernmental institution was the Venice Commission, which is a European Commission for Democracy Through Law, and it's made up of very high-level lawyers mostly. And then there was the fourth regional institution, which is a group of states against corruption that also contributed to the investigation. So all four institutions played a very important role. They all investigated what had happened from the standpoint of their own mandate. So they, you know, they were not responsible for doing what the Maltese police was responsible for doing, but they could do something else. So in the case of the special rapporteur, he assessed the rule of law from the standpoint of international standard, and he concluded with evidence that the rule of law in Malta failed to meet European standard. The Venice Commission looked at the separation of power in Malta and concluded that there too, Malta democratic system failed to meet the basic standard of separation of power. The uh, group of state against corruption uh, reviewed the measures against corruption and found them to be insufficient. So each of those agencies played their own technical role, contributing to circumstantial evidence, pointing to the systemic failure of the state. And I have no doubt that this made it much easier, quotation mark, for the truth to be revealed. Because once the system is being presented in all its limitation, weaknesses and corruption, you know, that, that's the beginning of the unfolding, really, of the dynamic that made the killing of Daphne possible. This technical work was backed up then by more political intervention on the part of uh, members of the European Parliament, who, on the back of those technical reports, undertook an official mission to Malta and found, extraordinarily enough, that the Prime Minister himself posed a risk to the integrity of the murder investigation. And so, by the time that they've issued that statement, a lot had already been found both at systemic level and at more at the specific level of that investigation. And here you have, I think, a very clear example of how regional or international institutions, by working through their technical mandate, 
not interfering necessarily with the police, are able to contribute what I call circumstantial evidence, but you know, you could also refer to that as systemic demonstration of the ingrained corruption, that implication directly on the murder itself, but also on the integrity of the investigation. And as we are speaking, things are continuing to progress as they should. A number of high-level officials, including the prime minister, have had to resign. A couple of them have been arrested. All of that in relationship to the the murder of uh, Daphne. The hitmen themselves were arrested very early on. Now the masterminds are behind bars. They are being tried and hopefully they will be uh, found guilty. Thank you, Agnes. And you have spoken about a case that is emblematic of the factors that we've been highlighting today, the case of Daphne Caruana Galizia, which is emblematic not only because of the investigation, but as you said, everything that has unfolded in Malta after this assassination has been quite remarkable, quite extraordinary. Juan Francisco, if I can turn to you, what are the internationalized prosecutions How are they implemented in Guatemala and have they helped reduce the murder rates? Bueno, esa es la de los enjuiciamientos internacionalizados. That is what I mean by internationalized prosecutions, which are mechanisms of justice that are applied by virtue of international conventions, which is another form of justice. And what we are looking for is precisely to respond to victims of crime and in the world, since there have been many modalities of internationalized prosecutions here in Guatemala. The International Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala was created by the United Nations directly through the agreement signed with Guatemala and is an integrated mechanism that is independent of the national judicial system, although it operates in Guatemala's own jurisdiction. It's financed by the international community and it's made up both international and local personnel. With many mechanisms that were implemented in Guatemala as a result of the Commission presence in the country. In what sense was litigation and criminal prosecution potentiated by tackling criminal phenomena and was by virtue of some support that the Commission provided in the formation of Criminal Analysis Department of Public Prosecution Office in the same way here in Guatemala, the law against organized crime was already enforced but the special methods of investigation were not applied and it was by virtue of the Commission's involvement that the interception of communications, effective collaboration, criminal and financial analysis and the use of forensic information extraction and analysis teams began to be used. And the operational interinstitutional coordination topics were carried out or implemented and in that sense it can be explained one of the reasons why there was precisely a reduction in the homicide rate. As determined by the integrated system of justice, it creates a measurement that was carried out in the justice system with the cooperation of the International Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala. And Juan Francisco, what are the best strategies for dismantling criminal structures and preventing murder for higher crimes, in your opinion? Well, the best or the best strategies to dismantle precisely the criminal structures and the prevention of murder come precisely from the use of mechanisms that law has the scope for, in this case, the prosecutor's office. 
the institution in charge of criminal prosecution, we have been able to observe how this issue of criminal structures that are dedicated to this type of crime respond to patterns that derive from the other criminals, such as drug trafficking and money laundering, other crimes that are related to social conflict and land disposition. And these homicidal structures of high firepower and hitmen are used and that are precisely the parallel combat of other scourges constitute a tool that can contribute to the dismantling of criminal structures and precisely to prevention of contra killing. Thank you, Juan. Anis, you of course mentioned the Daphne Caruana Galizia case and you yourself worked on the Jamal Khashoggi case. Both these cases were able to get to the truth, directly linking these murders to senior politicians within their respective cases. But I wanted to ask you whether this is replicable in other places when you're facing corrupt governments. What needs to be done to set up an effective international investigation? Well, I have absolutely no doubt that it can be duplicated elsewhere where there are regional institutions. So there is no reason why the inter-American system could not do what the European system did in the case of Malta. There is no reason why the African system could not proceed along the same lines of what the European system did in the case of Malta. All it needs, really, at the end of the day, is courage, is political courage, because institutionally, those three systems have the capacity to carry out these kind of studies. So I think, yes, The involvement of regional or international organization is possible in those emblematic cases in particular. I don't think we can expect them to do so for every such, such killing. But if they do it on a couple of them that become emblematic, I think it will have ripple effect throughout the region. Now, the other dimension of an effective international investigation, I think I've already been very well highlighted by Steve. You know, you need to have the proper people, you need to have the, the good experts, you need to have excellent standard operating procedures so that no one can then suggest you have not done your work properly. You need to have a very good system in place to protect the confidentiality of the communication and the interviews. Uh, the electronic gathering of data must be very well protected. So, you know, technically speaking, you must have in place the best system uh, possible. And here we have already, I think, a number of experience we can rely upon, not just within the United Nations or within the regional institution, but within other institutions, which may be uh, private institutions, that do undertake this kind of uh, investigations. In the case of the United Nations, there are now a number of independent investigatory mechanisms that have been set up over the last three or four years, which are in many ways, testing the ground, putting in place the best possible standard operating procedures for this kind of investigation, the kind that they are doing and which could be duplicated elsewhere. So as an international community, I think we need to be far better prepared to respond to those targeted killing, hit killings, hit assassinations, particularly because they are not going to go down, 
And the more we speak up, the more we act against them, the more we make it clear that both the hitmen and those that commission the crimes will be identified and prosecuted. That, to me, is the strongest message we can send, and it is the strongest and most effective way to fight against impunity. Thank you, Anis, and you've certainly done tremendous work on the Jamal Khashoggi and Daphne Caruana Galizia investigations, and there's a lot to thank you for that. Judge Balsamo, if I can turn back to you, we keep talking about the masterminds and their responsibility and the difficulties in prosecuting them. I want to ask you, what is really necessary to be able to prosecute those behind the material perpetrators? Sì, io aggiungerei a menti anche l'aggettivo. To minds, uh, I will also add the adjective refined, as suggested back then by Judge Giovanni Falcone. And with regards to the attack he experienced, The issue of masterminds criminal liability is closely linked to the very basic approach to be followed for investigations in criminal proceedings. In other words, you can only level up when in the trial you accept a reconstruction which corresponds to the complexity of the criminal reality without easy shortcuts and refusing convenient truth. To achieve the result, we essentially uh, need two types of investigative tools. On the one hand, we often rely on collaborators of justice who have shown to be able to unveil the entire structure of an organization in its external context, making us understand the real decision-making mechanism. Think, for example, that the term Cosa Nostra was unknown before the, the collaborator and, and ex-Cosa Nostra boss Tommaso Buscetta revealed it. The second tool, on the other hand, consists of the most modern investigation techniques, including electronic surveillance and all those instruments which have a strong technological connotation. A great example is the Trojan, which makes investigators follow practically live the entire network of ties and relations of organized crime groups, also neutralizing encryption-related barriers. And given your experience and knowledge about the Italian context at a judicial level, What do you think is necessary for a country to reduce the impunity when prosecuting these masterminds? Sì, io credo che tra gli strumenti di maggiore importanza. I believe there are four necessary conditions. First, the creation of specialized judicial bodies capable of ensuring the continuity of focus on complex organized crime related phenomena. This can be achieved through the coordination of investigation on a national scale and the conformation of the judiciary system to the nature of this phenomenon. The second condition is the strengthening of the use of special investigative techniques such as undercover operation and, as said before, electronic surveillance. This shall be included in international judicial cooperation agendas through bilateral and multilateral agreements between states. By doing so, prosecutors from different countries will be able to collect and use in court information of extreme importance, which has been gathered elsewhere. The third, also with regards to international cooperation, is the development of bilateral and multilateral agreements, which would allow for the recognition of a transnational status to collaborators of justice, who are essential source for the investigative process. Fourth, the importance of assisting the victims' families uh, should not be underestimated. Only by building up a trust-based relationship, they open up to a positive attitude towards us, towards the judicial system, and contribute significantly to the reconstruction of the truth. There is a lot of work to be done in this field, and during my career I happened to meet different types of family members. Some who have even denied that the relative had been a victim of murder, 
but also families who have had an unbreakable faith in the justice system. In this regard, a person who for me uh, represents the symbol of this faith is the father of a police officer killed in Palermo, Antonino D'Agostino. Uh, the father also believed throughout his life in the ability of the judiciary to find the killers and then eventually punish them. And perhaps his hope will be satisfied in the near future. Let's all hope that the perpetrators are brought to justice. Judge Balsamo, thank you very much for your insights. Steve, what are the most efficient methods of investigating murder for hire? Do you think the solution is in prevention? Look, prevention is always better than cure. You know, if you can prevent the murder or the assassination, that's always a better, a better result. The issue with that is often people either don't foresee the threat or even if you do tell them about the threat, they're not prepared to take the protection that is on offer. You know, so that may be because of distrust, because they don't trust the system, they don't trust the police, or the fact that there are no systems in place. You know, there's no witness protection programs. You know, there's no ability to move people internationally. So look, yeah, often very difficult to also get the intelligence around this sort of stuff. You know, the fact that someone is a very public person and, and is making a lot of noise that, that may attract some attention from criminal networks or corrupt politicians doesn't always mean that there's a threat. Now, obviously, the, the threat probably does exist, but the police generally won't move on that threat until the, the threat materialises in, in some you know, shape or form. And they're informed about this, you know, that, there's not much proactivity out there around this sort of stuff, you know, particularly for journalists and, and those that, that, you know, that are all from civil society that are on the, on the front line. So, you know, it, it's a huge problem. It's something that, that needs to be rectified and worked on. Identifying these high-risk individuals and, and developing some sort of structure around them, but it is a very difficult ask. You know, for me, unfortunately, you know, once these crimes occur, the most effective and efficient way of, of ensuring conviction is to move quickly, to have the right people there, a lot of communication between police and prosecutor, to ensure that you're targeting the right people at the right time, and, you know, always being aware that there's a network around this person, and, and whilst that person may be insulated now, that may change over time. So, you know, never move on from these sort of things. These cases always remain open. You know, the classic example is Sammy the Bull Gravano, that rolled over on John Dotty on, on numerous murders. And that was many, 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 many years after these murders occurred. So these people have people within their own organisations that are looking to move up. There are people in prison that have a heavy penalty hanging over their head that may be prepared to cooperate. So, you know, the, the best thing is to get in there and, and, and with the right people at the, at the outset. And I think we all agree with you that this is definitely a large problem. But at least we're already talking about some actions that we can take. And those actions actually relate to this campaign assassination witness and the role of civil society, the media and the families of the assassinated people in pushing for these investigations. And yes, what recommendations do you have for the international community to reduce impunity rates and prevent these assassinations? How can we all play a role? The first recommendation for the so-called international community, here well, let's talk about states, government, the executives. What we want is them to be courageous. I want, we want them to be prepared to name a country that fails to investigate properly, a country 
that whose uh, political system is embroiled with organized crime that needs to be named, and the killings of those who are denouncing and reporting on this corruption, those killings must be the object of very clear, very public denunciations by members of the international community. That will already go, in my view, a long way towards sending a very clear message to member states around the world, um, meaning to countries around the world, that if their politicians are prepared to engage into this murder for hire, they must be prepared for the consequences of this act. And sending such a message at all levels possible of the international community, from other governments to the Secretary General, to the head of the uh, Human Rights Council, and so on, that to me is an essential condition and requirement for the fight against those murders for hire. So the second recommendations I, I will make, in addition to those that have been mentioned thus far, is with regard to uh, more preventative measures. And here I have recommended that countries adopt something that I call the Khashoggi sanctions. I am not insisting on the name. What I mean by the Khashoggi sanctions is a program of sanctions that are individualized. I'm not speaking about sanctioning a country. I'm speaking about sanctioning individuals who, through their action, have threatened those who are standing up to corruption, standing up to human rights violation, and so on. So they may be journalists, human rights defenders, civil society activists, dissidents, whoever they are. So these are two additional recommendations to the one I have already mentioned, which is the establishment of an international independent investigatory mechanism, either internationally or regionally, and courage. Courage. If you don't have courage, if the politicians do not have courage, if country executives are not prepared to take a stand, even though they are usually very well protected against the consequences of their stand, we will not be able to fight organized crimes, to fight corruption and corrupt politicians that are poisoning their society and indeed global society at large. Thank you, Agnes. Those are really clear prescriptions, actually, and I thank you too for your courage. Juan, if I can turn back to you, can you share some lessons learned through the work of CICIG in Guatemala? Do you think these lessons can be applied in other regions? Good lessons learned from working with the International Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala that could be applied in the regions. The work of the Commission is not only about dismantling criminal groups, but also about making recommendation, which may be one of the criticisms of the Commission work but could be carried out by a body in the countries that can show how it's necessary to move towards legal and institutional reforms and public policies in order to dismantle this type of torture, civil society and the media so that the c citizens themselves become involved 
not without revealing that there are institutional obstacles to the operation of mechanisms such as the one I work on here in Guatemala and campaign negative actions and that somehow prevent assassinations with the mechanisms such as who would be in charge of the monitoring work carried out by organizations such as the Commission or the MACI that existed in Honduras are the closest realities that they have at this time in mind. And Juan Francisco, can you tell us more about the challenges that you face in the fight against impunity? Well, we have many changes, and above all, the main challenge of fighting against impunity, overcoming the attacks that the fight to get rid of impunity has witnessed since 2016, by unveiling the heart of the illegal bodies and clandestine apparatuses with the capacity to generate and impose their actions because their work that we developed together with the Commission reveals all about the state of the various sectors. And if you come to the justice sector, which can serve to catalyze and detonate processes of change, this fundamental leverage of these processes must be the political class and civil society. As he reiterated, with comprehensive state reforms, the media, which must promote the necessary reforms to combat impunity and not only be at the mercy of a prosecutor's office. Thank you, Juan. A unified approach by civil society, the media, politicians and governmental institutions would certainly help defeat the scourge of impunity. Now, going back to Steve. What lessons learned from law enforcement, from your experience in investigating murders, can we apply to looking for solutions to this global phenomenon of criminal assassinations, Steve? At the investigations level, you know, we have advances, we have, you know, excellent forensic techniques out there now that, that can, the capabilities now are much better than even five years ago. That side of it, I don't personally see as the issue. Whilst there are obviously shortcomings in certain countries, that's an area where it's a relatively easy fix. It may cost a bit of money, but it's it's easy to fix. For me, the, the issues are much more about the political will to, to tackle these things or the international political will. From lessons learned, the lessons I've seen are that if you have the political will and the support of the government and the prosecution services to go after these people, well, then those barriers around that the corruption put in place are removed somewhat. But if that political will is not there, or you work, you know, you're in a system where the, where the government is corrupt, you have the very top levels of, of government organising these hits, that's a much harder sell, you know, a much harder win for, for law enforcement to get within that country. And that's when you do need those international and regional mechanisms that Agnes is talking about. There's no world policeman, there's no agency that's going to fly in and and sort this out at the moment. You know, so there needs to be something that motivates these governments to change, and that needs to be pressure exerted from outside. You know, the, the systems are in place, the methodologies are the same practically all around the world. You know, so for me, that's not so much the issue. The issue is the barriers of corruption and the political will to go after this. Absolutely. And is, would you like to respond to that? No, I, I could not agree more. You know, yes, in some cases, the technical skills may be lacking, the forensic, the scientific capacities to carry out investigation may be lacking, but there is mechanisms of international cooperation that are there. There are technical international or regional agencies that are prepared to assist national actors 
who may face some technical gaps. So the the, the real issue is going to be the political courage, it's going to be the political will that will be translated at the level of the local police and protection as well for the police that do their work properly. I think it's an important component. And any form of pressure we can push on national actors along with technical support, to me, is the proper combination. I don't believe in um, stick on their own, particularly if people have the willingness to move forward. But a combination of technical support and technical expertise with the proper level, high-level pressure and denunciation or indeed confirmation and congratulation, all of those will contribute to making making it more difficult for those murders for hire to be carried forward or to be ordered. It is an international responsibility, ultimately. The murder for hire are the symptom of something that is ingrained in our global society, is a symptom of the failure of our international uh, system to fight against corruption, against violations, and ultimately it is in everyone's interest to take a stand against them. Thank you. No, thank you, Agnes and Juan, Steve, and Judge Balsamo for all the work you do to bring justice to those murdered, for standing up to corruption in criminal governments. Your work is so vitally important to society in the fight against organized crime. And we at the Global Initiative thank you all for that. That is for today's episode of the Faces of Assassination podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Please go to our website, assassination.globalinitiative.net, subscribe to our newsletter and this podcast series. Help us remember the death anniversaries using our hashtag, AssassinationWitness. You can also download a free ebook which profiles 50 victims of assassination who have yet to receive justice. You can hear the story of Jan Kusher, the young journalist who was murdered along with his fiancé because of his investigations into the criminal operations of the Drangheta in Slovakia. Jan's death was the first targeted killing of a journalist in Slovakia and the second in less than six months in Europe. The best tribute you can pay to the courageous people who stood up to crime is to keep their memories alive. And with our collective memory, shine a light into this darkness. Please remember to rate this podcast. It helps us get noticed and get these important messages out there. To hear other podcasts from the GI, just visit our website, www.globalinitiative.net. This was the Faces of Assassination podcast. I am Siria Castellum-Felix. Thank you for listening.